We have been working our way through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves now at the end of Acts 15, our last time together here. We worked through the early part of the chapter, a really important chapter, the midway point of the book, not just from a chronological point of view or from a substance point of view, but also really from a trajectory point of view. The gospel had taken root in Jerusalem and in the rest of Israel under the early work of Peter and the rest of the apostles. Peter was used by the Lord Jesus to get the gospel to an early band of Gentiles. We saw that back in Acts chapter 10. Paul himself was converted in Acts chapter 9 because the Lord Jesus had intentions to get the gospel to all peoples everywhere. But there arose a conflict. The conflict was these Gentiles who were coming into the kingdom, this this completion, this fulfillment of the Jewish faith, how are they to come into the kingdom? Are they to become like Jewish proselytes, doing all the things that Jews had done in their historical tradition, things like circumcision, for instance. This was the particular concern in Acts chapter 15. In other words, did a Gentile convert a male Gentile convert, have to be circumcised to become part of this covenant community. And as the apostles and the church gathered together, they decided that circumcision was a superfluous thing from a salvation point of view. It wasn't necessary for justification. It was always meant to point to a greater reality. It was a covenant symbol for the ethnic Jews to demonstrate that Their former way of life had been taken away, and they would be set apart to God with tender hearts. It was, perhaps you've heard this cliche before, always an outward sign of an inward reality. But as the prophets had foretold, a new covenant would be brought to bear in the world. An external circumcision would no longer be required. In fact, the prophets hint that a circumcision of the heart would accompany this giving of a new covenant, that God would care little about physical circumcision, but deeply about internal circumcision, where He would take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, making it tender toward Him, where it could beat for Him, where an individual worshiper could love Him and treasure Him, And in fact, on that heart of flesh, he would etch his law, like an inward tattoo, so to speak. It would not be external on tablets of stone, but an inward law. And the idea that the prophets gave forth was that such a new covenant would allow people to obey the law and give them hearts that would want to obey the law. So in the giving of the gospel, several things happen. The penalty of sin is removed. The power of sin is removed. But the presence of sin remains. And so for those of us who live in this new covenant, we are justified. The penalty is gone. We have the ability to to overcome sin, though its presence remains. 
And so, according to the apostles, James, the leader in the church in Jerusalem and the church as a whole, they agreed that because of the nature of the new covenant, things like external circumcision would not be required. It was not part and parcel of justification. They did not want to add to the gospel. So we saw last time that we must be vigilant for there will always be internal and external threats to the purity of the gospel. Humanity loves the law. We hate it too because it condemns us. But we love lowercase law because we always want to bring something to the table. We want to contribute something to our salvation. And it is why not just for the last 2,000 years, but for the history of humanity, we have sought to save ourselves, to, to, to lend God a hand. And thus it remains true today that this gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, is under constant threat because of our tendency toward self-righteousness. And one of the great signs of maturation, progressive maturity that we are looking for in our church is that we have a good sniffer. Our radar is finely tuned to detect self-righteousness. Not because we want to pounce on people, but because we want the Lord Jesus to receive glory who gave us the gospel in the first place and we want his people to find joy and they will not find rest and joy when they are resting in their own self-righteousness. So self-righteousness is a constant threat to the Christian gospel and you and I are not exempt from this. You can see this whenever you fight in your family. I may or may not have been unkind to my wife this weekend at probably the worst time possible. One of the funnest things that we do as a family is that we go cut down a Christmas tree together. Now, we have plenty of stories whenever we have gone to cut down Christmas trees where it's not gone well, like where we've wandered around Christmas tree lots for like two or three hours at a time, and we really get mad at each other. For some reason, um, I think Satan hates Christmas trees because Jesus loves Christmas trees, right? I won't get into all the roots of that. Those of you who understand the roots of Christmas can argue with me later. But So let's just go with that. Jesus loves Christmas trees. Satan hates Christmas trees. And we tend to struggle on Christmas tree day. And this year was, was no uh, exception to that. So I was upset with her. She was upset with me. And it became clear after we finally talked that I was the problem. Well, that's not very fun, is it? I, I teach you all this stuff all the time. And yet... My self-righteousness is still deep and choppy, and the Lord Jesus is still at work on me like He is the rest of us. Self-righteousness can creep up at the most inopportune and surprising times. What do we do? Well, we must pass on the pure gospel to those in our spheres of influence. That, that's the most intimate of circles and the most peripheral of circles. In other words, in our homes... One of my nieces is staying with us right now. She's a freshman at Cedarville. I'm going to embarrass her. Um, she's staying with us for a couple of days before school starts back up on Tuesday. And we were sitting around our island last night eating cookies or 
caramel popcorn or something. And she looked at her cousin, my eldest son, and said, your identity is in Jesus, Jack. I think he said something that would have made her question whether or not he believed that. Um, he believes that, by the way. But it was interesting because her father and I are very close. He's one of my brothers. And we talk about this all the time. And we're very deliberate about passing that on to our kids. Your identity is in Jesus. It's not in, in what you say. It's not in what you do. It's not in your giftings. It's, it's okay to repent. It's okay to admit you have faults. You, you are the children of your fathers who do the same things. So what do we do? We, we pass on a pure gospel to our children and to our spouses to our larger family. Probably, inevitably, some of you spent time with family members in the past several days who actually don't embrace this. That's super hard. But the concentric circles expand outward. We live in a community of people who are, who are really able, really, really capable, who, who really can make life work. They're smart. They're well-educated. They have expendable income. But those things will not save them. In fact, those things may keep them from the kingdom. So we come to people and we give them a pure gospel. We, we push back against very harmful cliches such as, God helps those who help themselves. Patently unbiblical. We give people a pure gospel because we know the disease of self-righteousness will damn and truly, the glory of God and the eternal salvation of otherwise hopeless people is at stake. In other words, whenever a pure gospel is articulated and embraced, God gets glory because He's the only one who can save. We must have a heart for people who have not heard and who do not understand the gospel. That is our responsibility. But in our section today, which is short, there are important lessons to be learned. An intriguing little short section here at the end of Acts. And just like Satan hates Christmas trees, Satan hates unity. Satan hates God's people. He hates unified mission. He hates the spread of the gospel. So, so here's what's going on if we have eyes to see. In the first 35 verses of Acts 15, Satan attempts to eclipse the gospel with, with legalism, with self-righteousness. In verses 36 through 41, Satan attempts to thwart the spread of the gospel, you could also say eclipse the gospel, through interpersonal conflict. That's interesting. Satan is crafty and deceitful. And he will do his dead-level best to, to halt the spread and acceptance of the good news of Jesus. Let's read these final verses of Acts 15, and let's see what we can learn. This is God's Word. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 
May God bless to us the reading of the word. If you remember the story of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, John Mark had gone with them, but he, he left them. He had given up on them. It was too hard for him. Paul and Barnabas faced consistent pressure in their preaching of the gospel. John Mark was just not up to it yet. John Mark's mother, as we learned previously, had hosted at least some of the gathering of the church in Jerusalem. So he came from a family of faith, at least his mother. What we will not see here in the book of Acts, but we do find in Paul's writings, in Colossians chapter 4 specifically, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. So think about this. They go on their first missionary journey. Barnabas was probably vouching for his cousin, and then he takes off. He abandons them. He, he flakes out. He's, he's a bit cowardly. Barnabas would have taken that super seriously. If Barnabas had massive identity issues, if he found his identity in, in his family, then he would have fallen apart. But he didn't. He continued on with Paul, and they had a very successful first missionary journey. They are then sent down to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 to defend a pure gospel. When they get back, Paul, who has in so many ways now taken the lead in that relationship, Barnabas initially had the lead when Paul was first converted. He vouched for Paul, which was very much in keeping with Barnabas' personality. Barnabas' very name means son of encouragement. Paul now takes the lead in the relationship and says to Barnabas, Let, let's go back. Let's go back and visit the cities where we've been. Let's strengthen the churches. Let's invest in their leaders. Let's make sure they're solid. As you will see as you continue to read into Acts chapter 16, as the gospel actually expanded beyond the initial intentions. The gospel got into Greece and went beyond Galatia where Paul and Barnabas had first been on their missionary journey. So Barnabas and Paul want to go back to where they had been to make sure that the Great Commission actually came to pass. Because remember, the Great Commission is not just to make converts, it's to make disciples. And Paul and Barnabas wanted these churches to have strength to them, to be solid, to not give in to the pressures, to cave. So Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back. Let's strengthen the churches. And Barnabas, whose cousin had flaked out on them prior to this, wants to take along John called Mark. But Paul thought it best, according to verse 38, not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. So Luke, who became Paul's traveling companion, phrases that in a very interesting way. Notice in verse 39 that there is not just general disagreement, there's a sharp disagreement. Elsewhere, this same Greek word is used to talk about God's wrath against sinful people. That's interesting. In other words, these two people who really cared about each other, they went at it. If we have been adults, any length of time, we have gone through this, right? If you've been married any length of time, you have been through this. If you have dwelt together in a church with friends for any length of time, you have been through this. 
And what is more tragic than when you have a sharp, maybe even a cataclysmic disagreement with someone you deeply love? I think one of the things that we learn from all of this is that godly people with good intentions will inevitably disagree at times. So we're not super interactive here. Let's get interactive for just a moment. How many of you, as you look back at your life, either long-term or short-term, have had this happen, where somebody you've really loved, you've had a sharp disagreement, and it changed the course of your relationship? How many of you have had that? We pretty much all had that, right? And that's hard. Especially whenever you've labored alongside someone that you deeply love, like you've been in the trenches together. Paul and Barnabas had done that, right? They had put their very lives on the line to proclaim Jesus. It doesn't get much more intimate than that. I mean, it's possible to, to have people that you're not related to by blood to be dearer to you, to be nearer to you than even your blood relatives. I've experienced this. I've experienced the deep division of family breakup in my own family. It was, it was family altering. It was life altering. Those were very, very dark days. Likewise, I have had this happen with ministry companions. And the pain from, from that breakup was just as, if not more intensely damaging to me as the family breakup that I underwent. When you love someone, and you've, you've done important things together, when, you, when you've been in agreement and and labored alongside one another, especially for the sake of Christ, which is the most important cause there has ever been. And then conflict arises, and then division arises as a result. That's really, really hard. To just really be honest with you, those are wounds which, which do scar over, over time, Scar tissue forms there. They're, they're not seeping anymore. But as Tolkien makes clear when Frodo at the end of the trilogy ends up going to the fair lands with the elves, there are some wounds that, that though the scar tissue forms, they don't fully heal this side of eternity. Paul and Barnabas seem to undergo such a disagreement. You're, you're Barnabas. Put yourself in, in his shoes. You had, you had put yourself on the line to vouch for Paul. Paul. Paul had been demonized by the early church, and justifiably so, because he had murdered a bunch of early Christians. But he comes to faith in Jesus, and, and who sticks up for him? Who puts his neck on the line for him? It's Barnabas. And probably, if, if Barnabas' name and character hold true throughout his life, Barnabas probably served Paul all the time, 
Even to the point now that as Paul gained prominence, Barnabas was okay with that. Barnabas, who was a bright light, did not shine nearly as brightly as Paul, who was so unbelievably and unusually gifted. Barnabas doesn't seem to be affected by that. And now whenever he wants to take along this this cousin of his that, that he thought could be redeemed, that he thought his story could turn around, he had a lot of capital with Paul. He should have been able to draw on that capital, on that currency, and Paul says no. No wonder Barnabas whose heart bled for people all the time because he loved people so deeply. No wonder he was so frustrated with Paul and willing to dig his heels in. But then you have Paul, right? Who wasn't afraid to to call people out. You see this in Galatians chapter 2. He does this with Peter. The text says that he withstood Peter to his face because Peter was, was being a hypocrite compromising perhaps the very nature of the gospel by giving in to legalists that were around him because he had fear of man issues. Paul calls up people like Demas and Alexander and others. Paul wasn't afraid to speak the truth. Because Paul was going to go back to a dangerous place, and he didn't know this, but he was going to go to even more dangerous places and get the gospel to very important cities like Corinth and Athens in this next missionary journey. He had to, to lead in a certain way, and he didn't think that, that carrying this guy along that he wasn't sure would be able to stick it out was the right decision. And so he looks at Barnabas, whose heart is bleeding for his cousin, and with a firm mind and a firm conviction, he says he He can't help us. This won't be good for us. And so they have sharp disagreement. So that, according to verse 9, they separate from each other. Godly people with good intentions will inevitably disagree at times. Our perspectives are often driven by relationships and temperament or gifting. Barnabas' perspective was driven by his relationship with his cousin. Barnabas' relationship with with John Mark was not the only issue. I think it was also driven by his temperament and gifting, but, but vice versa for Paul. He didn't have the deep family commitment that Barnabas had, and he didn't have the same perspective that Barnabas had. So one of the questions that I think inevitably arises out of this text is who was right and who was wrong? And the answer is we, we don't really know. Now, I'm going to revisit that at the end and suggest a couple of things. But I think the truth of the matter is, you could equally say that both were right. Was Barnabas right to stick with his cousin? Because of who he was, not just from a familial point of view, but from a gifting point of view. Was Barnabas right? I think the answer is yes. Was Paul right? Likewise, I think the answer is yes. And and here is a difficult thing that we sometimes have to grasp. Sometimes the Lord Jesus uses sin to bring about purposes that we never would have accomplished in our own wisdom and strength. Here's what I mean. Is it possible that if John Mark had gone with Paul, that he would have flaked out again? 
I think the answer is possibly yes. Was it better for Paul and the mission that he was going to go on for him not to go with him, for John Mark not to accompany him? I think the answer to that is yes. And here's the thing. Paul was not the right one to help John Mark. I think Paul too often saw the world in black and white. And there are people like that in our lives, right? Some of you are like that. I'm half like that. Some of the time, I see the world with no gradation at all, black and white. My mind theologically works that way. John Mark, I don't think, needed a guy like that at that point in his formation. He needed someone who could see gradation, shades of gray. Not that Barnabas was a compromiser, but Barnabas was characterized by by being long-suffering, and patient. And just like there are some of us in this church that do see the world in, in black and white, there are others in our church who, who see the world in shades of gray because of how God has made you, because of how God has shaped your story. And based upon who you are and how God has made you, it doesn't mean that every person that is out there who may be godly and mature is the best person to help you. In other words, you may be a person who's passionate about disciple-making, but that doesn't mean that you're properly gifted and equipped to help every single person. This was a hard thing for me to learn when I became a pastor. This has happened in our church, where after I discipled a person for a while, they sat down with me over one of our weekly meals when we would talk about Jesus and read the Bible together and grow in faith together and say to me, this has happened on more than one occasion, Um, I don't really think this is working. Well, that's a shot to my pride, right? Like, like, yeah, I get paid to do this, but I love you too. But there have been times in in the course of ministry where I have not been the right person to disciple another. And it was hard for me to, to hand that person off to another person who actually did a better job with them than I ever did or ever could because I wasn't the right person for them. And just like you're not always the right person to help every single person under your care and your sphere of influence, if you're the kind of person who needs some help, you may have to find the right person to help you. And that can be hard. And I think that's one of the things we've seen going on in this text. Who was right? Well, Paul was right. This guy who saw the world with very little shades of gray, at least at this point in his life, was the kind of guy that had to go into these unknown cities with unknown threats and lay his life on the line. A guy like that couldn't really see the world with lots of shades of gray. It had to be black or white, life or death, Jesus or not. And John Mark would not have been a good traveling companion for Paul going forward. Barnabas instead takes John Mark and goes goes to Cyprus. Now, if you remember, Barnabas is from Cyprus which may mean that John Mark initially was from Cyprus as well. So where did they go? They went to a place where the gospel was taking root among Gentiles as well, but a place that was close to home so so that John Mark's faith could be incubated for a while. Was Paul right? Yes. Was Barnabas right? Yes. 
This brings us to the next main thing I think we learned from this text. And we've got to go elsewhere to see this. The Lord will redeem our conflicts for good. So I've already said to you, I think Paul was right, and I think Barnabas was right. I would suggest that maybe Barnabas was a tiny bit more right. And let me tell you why. If you know anything about the rest of John Mark's story, he gets restored to Paul. We'll look at that together in just a bit. But if you look back at the beginning of the New Testament canon, it begins with Matthew, and the second book is what? It's the second gospel. It's Mark. And do you know who wrote that second gospel, which almost all conservative scholars agree was the first gospel written? And it would have been written pretty early maybe by even like the early to mid-50s A.D., maybe about 20 years after Jesus' ascension, which means that it was the earliest record of Jesus' actual life and ministry that was written down, probably under Peter's influence. Peter later in 1 Peter 5 will call John Mark his son. He, he saw him as such. John Mark's story got redeemed. And his influence has, has been left for us as a legacy to Barnabas being right, to the Holy Spirit being faithful to keep his promises to, to change God's people over time, a testimony to Jesus' affections for his people that he will not abandon them, that he will keep all of his promises to them. John Mark wrote down the story of the life of Jesus, and it has influenced millions of people for thousands of years. Think about that. Was Paul right? Yes, John Mark was not fit to go with Paul. Was Barnabas right? He was. And look what happened. We have four canonical, that means gospels that, that made it into the canon, to our, our New Testament. We have four of them. And John Mark's is one of them, and it was the first one. And it probably gave shape to both Matthew's and Luke's gospels. They probably used it as a bit of a template for the writing of their own. And it's very interesting that Peter who was one of Jesus' very close companions, who you would have expected perhaps to write one of the Gospels. I mean, after all, John did. James didn't have time, John's brother, because he was killed. But you'd think Peter would have. But Peter didn't, but used John Mark to write one. That's really interesting. What did the Lord Jesus do with John Mark's story? This one who had been a coward, the one who had given up. He, he seemingly gave him after that failure, a little bit of inkling of courage. Or maybe he talked to his cousin and said, Barnabas, I want to give it another go. I love Jesus. I want to make him known. I want to treasure him. But I know I can be a coward. I know my faith is frail. And that's all you've got to say to a person like Barnabas. You give a guy like Barnabas a little shred of hope, he's going to put his arm around you and be your hero. And that's who Barnabas was. 
I love people like Barnabas. I've had too many people in my life turn their back on me because I didn't perform perfectly at all the right moments. You ever had that happen to you? Where your faith was really not up to snuff? And rather than somebody in authority coming around you and putting their arm around you and weeping with you and drying your tears and encouraging you and walking with you while you took time to change, instead drew the line in the sand and applied the law to you and just crushed you further. That's why I love people like Barnabas. They're deeply long-suffering. They're deeply patient and merciful. You just have to think that you'd get around a guy like Barnabas and you'd immediately love him. You'd want to be near him. This doesn't mean that Paul was bad. Paul was doing the right thing. Paul was fulfilling his calling. I think both in Paul and Barnabas, you see, you see contours of Jesus, right? Jesus could be uh, unreservedly firm at times, particularly with, with legalists. He would draw lines in the sand and he would pull no punches. And then at other times, Jesus surprisingly would be incredibly tender, even with really wicked people. But we're not Jesus, are we? He's making us, reforming us into his image over time. But, but you see in Paul and Barnabas, two people serving Jesus in the advancement of his kingdom who evidence him in different ways. And John Mark needed the compassionate side of Jesus, evidenced through Barnabas to help him along. What are some lessons that we can learn from this story? Well, first of all, don't burn bridges. I'm going to look at a few verses in just a moment that, that prove this to be true. But when you have conflicts with people, even sharp disagreement that causes division, don't burn bridges because you never know what's going to happen down the road. Be careful to not make it super personal. I don't think Paul was wrong. I don't think Barnabas was wrong. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as he talks about Barnabas that they are both worthy of, of receiving the the reward for their labors. They should be taken care of financially for the fact that they go out and preach the gospel. Paul seems to evidence by this implicitly that he, he accepted Barnabas. He loved Barnabas. He honored and respected him. He, he loved him deeply. There would come a time when reconciliation would come to pass, which, which means you've got to be careful not to make these things so deeply personal. Don't burn bridges with people when you have conflict. Secondly, don't lose heart. It's really easy whenever conflict arises in your relationships to fall apart emotionally. Be careful about this in your marriages. We've not had a lot of these in our, our marital experience, but there have been times where we just couldn't find agreement. I could probably count those on two hands. Those are, those are really hard moments. I've had to, to counsel couples in this church when they haven't been able to figure out a way forward because they had different viewpoints on things. It's easy for the husband in those moments to, to pull the submission card, right? Say, well, we can't agree, so we'll just do what I want. <laughs> By the way, that doesn't usually work super well. Uh, it's hard in those moments where you don't really fully agree on things. How do you find your way forward? Well, don't lose heart. Inevitably, there'll be some way you can compromise together. And, and also, 
this third thing, as we look for the contours of his providence, the, the data points along the way, the, the big sort of points in the timeline along the way, we see that, that Jesus doesn't waste anything. He redeems our, our, our conflicts for good, which means that we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to, we don't have to shrivel up and fall apart. If Paul and Barnabas had done that, think about this. The gospel would not have gone to either one of the places that it went to. This is one of the plus sides of, of them separating as the gospel sort of got, got duplicated. And then other people got trained. Silas got trained. John Mark was redeemed. Paul will encounter a guy named Timothy in Acts chapter 16, to whom he will later write two letters who gets trained, who may not have had the same opportunity had Barnabas and John Mark been with him. But there's also other contours to this story. I've mentioned this to you already, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes and says, By Silvanus, this is also Silas, another name for Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, she who is at Babylon, this is probably Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Peter had gotten to Rome and helped establish the church there. And who was with him? John Mark was. Eventually, he was equipped to go to a place that, that Peter calls Babylon. Rome was so evil that he likened it to Babylon. Because Barnabas had been faithful to come alongside John Mark and his weakness, He was later equipped to go to such a place and then write one of the Gospels. But look who else gets reconciled to John Mark. Paul says in Philemon, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark. This is John Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. This would have probably been toward the mid-60s. It may have taken up to a decade for, for Paul and, and John Mark to be fully reconciled. Let's look in Colossians chapter 4 together for just a moment. Here again, we find John Mark mentioned. We won't read all these verses, but Paul, as he often did at the end of his letter, sends greetings from his companions, and he says, Tychicus will tell you, Colossians 4, 7, about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And he mentions Onesimus in verse 9. Look in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. How did Paul eventually feel about this young guy who had flaked out on him. Because Barnabas spent time with him and brought him along, Paul not only sort of glanced at him and said, well, I'm glad he's doing well, he became part of Paul's traveling company. Then lastly, let's look in 2 Timothy chapter 4 together. Paul says here in verse 9, and by the way, this is Paul's last letter, probably during his second imprisonment in Rome, he's going to die soon. Do your best to come to me soon. Paul saw the handwriting on the wall. It wasn't looking good. 
For Demas, who he had already commended at one point for being his fellow companion, had now fallen in love with the present world and had deserted him and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. These other people began flaking out on Paul at the end when it got too hot. Notice the middle of verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that beautiful? Who was right in Acts chapter 15? Was Paul right? I think he was. He wasn't the right one to help John Mark, and John Mark would not have been a good accomplice in that mission. Was Barnabas right? He was. Maybe a tiny bit more. Because John Mark's story gets redeemed, and he not only becomes one who wrote down the life of Jesus for our good 2,000 years later, but he became a close and important companion for Paul, one of his dear companions, who at the very end of his life he wanted near him. So I say to you, don't lose heart whenever you undergo conflict with people that you love deeply. You do not know how it will end up. Be careful not to burn bridges and try to trace the contours of that story. Don't forget to pray for people you've had conflict with. At times, if it's appropriate, reach out to them. Pray for reconciliation. There is coming a day, my friends, where even if we don't find perfect reconciliation, even if the the wounds still pain us, that all will be fixed. When we gather together around Jesus' feasting table, we will have no more conflict. Don't don't you look forward to that? (laughs) When there's not even a possibility of interpersonal conflict. I look forward to being with Jesus. I look forward to worshiping Him and treasuring Him. I also look forward to a day when there's no more possibility of conflict with people around me. That day is coming. But, but maybe in the here and now, we get little foretastes of that. Now, the truth of the matter is, and we'll close with this, most of our conflicts don't arise to this level. And we should be careful not to let them. We should be careful not to dig in our heels so much that they arise to the level where we have to, to part from one another. Most of our relationships should be characterized by very short accounts and quick repentance and quick forgiveness, right? Don't nod our heads. Most of our relationships should be characterized by that. And may the Lord, because we are postured toward repentance and, and forgiveness, may, may the Lord see fit in our church to keep us together and help us to love one another, to forgive each other, to be long-suffering. But when those occasions arise, when sharp disagreement occurs, let us be careful to, to make sure that we don't add offense to the gospel. We don't burn bridges unnecessarily. We trust the Lord because he will always do good. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus takes broken things and makes them whole. So this passage, if we put it together with other passages, declares to us that Jesus is in charge, Jesus is good, and that we can trust him. And so for his glory, may we treasure him, and for his glory, may we love each other well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us now. May we learn from this text the lessons that you have us to learn. May you change our minds, and may you change our hearts for your glory and for our collective joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.